Microphone is not on. My goodness. There we go. All right. You're good. Hey, we're glad you're here. In uh, 2009, a gathering happened in Denver, Colorado, where several church leaders came together with uh, the leaders of the city and were asking the question how they could partner together with the city to uh, accomplish and or serve uh, in response to what were the greatest needs of the city, how they could, how they could resource those needs. The mayor came into the conversation. Um, in the midst of that, the mayor turned to many of those church leaders and pastors and simply said to them this, you know, the majority of issues, whatever those issues might be, whether they be um, fatherlessness, whether they be um, inadequate housing, uh, food scarcity, elderly shut-ins who had no one to care for them, inadequate housing, Whatever those might be, he said, the majority of issues facing our city today would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. Isn't that great? Church leaders come together and they want to find solutions where the city can allow them to serve within initiatives and programs. And they said, no, what we don't need is more programs. What we don't need is more initiatives. What we need is for neighbors to be neighbors. The mayor left the room and one of the pastors turned to the others and he said, you know what, am I the only one here who's a little bit embarrassed? Because it seems that what the mayor is asking for us to do is to lead our communities to follow the second half of the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And if everyone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, would love their neighbors well, the greatest issues facing the city and our neighborhoods and our communities would be drastically reduced or eliminated altogether. Historically speaking, Christianity has transformed its communities, its cities, even continents, when ordinary men, women, and young people who claim a commitment to Jesus Christ as king move out into their neighborhoods with a radical commitment to loving their neighbors through random acts or practical acts of kindness and generosity. And not only do we see this in the early historical accounts of the church, we looked at that through the summer, the book of Acts. But we also th see this through church historians who wrote with bewilderment about how the early Christians loved their communities so well. One of those historians was named Diognetus, and he wrote in the second century, trying to explain away the peculiar habits of the Christians. He described it this way. He said, they're distinguished from other men, neither by country or language, nor the customs which they observe, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their most wonderful and confessingly striking method of life. I'll stop there for a moment. Here's what Diognetus was saying. He's saying if you were to walk into a marketplace on a Wednesday afternoon, you would not tell a Christian by the clothes that they were wearing, by the language they were speaking, what side of tracks, the tracks they grew up on or came from, their dialect. You would not be able to tell based upon where they were going to spend Friday evening or who they were spending it with, whether or not they were a Christian. What marked them as different was the way they lived their lives toward their neighbors. Read on. They have a common table but not a common bed. They're poor, yet they make many rich. 
They're in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. And what he's saying is that in a Roman culture where people were radically promiscuous with their bodies, but stingy with their money, the Christians move into their neighborhood and they're promiscuous with their money and stingy with their bodies. And no one can understand it. They look on and they say, no one's ever lived like this. No one's valued their wives like this. Men didn't treat women like this. People didn't have home, you know, open their homes and have neighbors in and share their food like this. No one's lived like this. But these men and women do and hearts were stirred for their king, Jesus. And men and women bowed their knee to him in droves. And in the same way, I believe there are a few things more questionable more provocative in our culture today than when men and women and young people who claim allegiance to Jesus Christ live out the spirit of Jesus in the circles in which they live and move. So today what I want to do is I want to take you to what is a pretty ordinary text if you've been around a community of faith for a while, one that you've probably heard before. If this is your first time with us, we hope that this scripture is able to be opened in a way that's fresh for you and draws your heart to who Jesus is. We hope that you're captured by his generosity. But I want you to go with me to Matthew 14 because I believe Jesus not only shows us his heart, but also the heart that he longs to stir in us as a people. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13. The gospel writer writes, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, a little context of the story. Moments earlier, if you read the text, Jesus has just lost his best friend and predecessor in ministry, John the Baptist. And so he, like us, is grieving, if we've experienced this, and he wants to take his closest friends, he gets into a boat to go to the other side of the lake where he can be alone. And don't we want the same thing when our hearts are broken? The crowds, meanwhile, don't relent and they approach Jesus and seeing the crowds, rather than saying to his disciples, get in the boat, they're thoughtless, they're punks, we got to get away from them, you know, because the crowds never relent. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he turns toward them and Matthew writes, he had compassion on them. And he began to heal their sick. Verse 15. That evening the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, notice this, that isn't necessary. You feed them. You feed them. Now, there are remarkable implications for what this means for how we live our lives generously toward people in need. But before we get there, I want to show you from the text what I believe are three barriers to generosity in our life. Taking notes, three reasons why our hearts oftentimes don't move in the direction that Jesus' heart moves. And I want to give them to you right from the text. Number one, oftentimes, as we see in this narrative, the need is too big. The need's too big. And because the need is too big, we don't move to generously supply 
the need. Look at the disciples. They're pragmatic, logical guys. They look out at the crowd. They know there's only 12 of them. They have limited resources. Uh, Historians would say that with men and women, this crowd probably exceeded 15,000 people. They look at the crowd. They look at their resources. They say the need is too big. They go to Jesus and say, send them away. And Jesus pulls it on them and says, no, you feed them. Now, guys, you ever experience this? Like, I come home occasionally, and, you know, at the end of a long day, getting ready for dinner, and Beth looks at me, and she says, we have nothing to eat in the house. You ever been there? I say, nothing to eat? Nothing to eat. Nothing? Very little. So she looks at me and pulls to Jesus. She's like, you feed them. You ever been there? You ever been there? And you know what dads do when moms look at you, when wives look at you and say, you feed them? You know what you do? We're going out to eat, kids. All right. Let's do this, okay? Everyone in the van. That's how dad feeds, okay? So we just did that this week, and we go out to Pepper Jacks or Panera, whatever it is, and that's how we resource the need. And they say the same thing to Jesus. They say, listen, we got nothing. Nothing? Nothing. We have nothing. You feed them. And look at what they do. Verse 37, we'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. We can't do it. We don't even have a Panera, okay? We got nowhere to send them. Send them out into the village. You feed them, Jesus. Figure it out. You know what they're saying? They're saying the need is too big. We can never feed this crowd. And some of us never get around to Jesus honoring generosity because the needs around us exceed the resources available to us. Isn't it true? Like you look out at the world, And it can be overwhelming to see things like global hunger, the inability of whole communities to get clean water, disease that could be eradicated with medication or clean drinking sources, 26,000 children who die daily because they don't have clean water that's able to sustain their health. Sickness, poverty, homelessness, fatherlessness, and you look around, the need is so great that oftentimes it can have a paralyzing effect on our lives. Jesus, the need is so great. What could we possibly do? Let's bring it even closer to home. It takes a remarkable amount of resources, physically and emotionally, to love and serve your neighbors well, doesn't it? To know their names, to open their home, your homes to them to share your food, to invite them in, to learn their stories, to recognize needs, to be an encourager, to lift them up, to be there for them when they need help. It takes a remarkable amount of resources, and the average American family has no margin by which to resource these needs. That's why the majority of Christians, men and women, don't know many of the names of the neighbors who live directly across from them or next to them. We have no margin by which to resource the needs. And like the disciples, I think we find ourselves saying things like, all we've got is five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus, do something about it. But Jesus looks at us when we say that, and he says, no, you feed them. We say, but Jesus, I have no margin, no resources. I have no time to have people into my homes, but you feed them. But Jesus, I'm physically and emotionally exhausted at the end of my week. When it comes to Friday, all I want to do is go into my house and close the windows and the blinds and just vet for the week and just refresh to get ready for the next week. And Jesus says, no, but you, you're my follower. You feed them. 
but we're in debt up to our eyeballs. How could we possibly give to meet a need when we have no resources available to us on our own? He says, but you feed them. What difference can I make with a single act of kindness? And Jesus says, no, you, you feed them. Am I the only one who's ever said these things before? Anyone in here? Good two of you. Okay, catch me afterwards and we'll, uh, we'll study scripture or something together. I don't know. We'll figure this out. Of course we have. And while these sound like good logical reasons to avoid generosity, Jesus will not let us go there. Instead, he looks us in the eyes and he says, the need is great, but you are my resource that I've chosen to address that need. You feed them. For many of us, one of the great barriers to generosity is that the need is so big we become overwhelmed by it. The second barrier is that our God is too small. The God of our hearts is too small. See, in the text behind the disciples' request to send the crowds away was the simple fact that they did not believe Jesus was sufficient enough to meet the need, did they? They didn't believe him. This in spite of everything that they had seen in the Gospels up to this point. Matthew records that early in his Gospel, Jesus met a paralytic who had a socially debilitating disease. He heals him with the command of the word. Moments later, he goes to Peter, his apostle's mother-in-law's home, cures a fever in her and spends the whole evening healing the sick. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead to life. He healed sickness. He restored hearts. The disciples have front row seats to it all. And yet when it comes around to meeting the hunger of a crowd, they wavered. They didn't believe he could do it. They wavered for the same reason that you and I waver. They wavered for the same reason that you and I have a difficulty believing that God is able to resource needs through our lives. It's why when unexpected bills arrive in your mailbox, you freak rather than rest. Isn't that true? It's why when it comes to generosity, many Christians are calculated and cautious in the way that we give. Because we believe if we give it away, God could never supply what we gave. It's why rather than being lavish in our generosity, because we believe that God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine, we don't pray often asking God, what can I give? You know, Jesus commanded, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, when you give, have a conversation with the Holy Spirit of God to say, what should I give? You know what's interesting? I don't know how many Christians I've talked to who plead with God and say, God, how much should I give? Can you imagine if every week we got connection cards saying, pray for my spouse and I, we don't know how much to give. We don't get those kind of connection cards, all right? We don't. And if I'm being honest with you, I don't have that conversation with Jesus all the time. How much do I give today? I want to do it joyfully. Why? Because oftentimes the God of our hearts is too small. We don't believe we've restricted him by our lack of faith in what he is able to do. And it becomes a barrier that gets in the way of us and our neighbors and being able to bless their lives. Number three, the final barrier is this. That you and I cannot imagine the invitation at hand to us. If you place yourself in the narrative, the disciples have the front row seat to see Jesus feed 15,000 people with a happy meal, okay? Who would not want to be there? 
And yet you and I don't understand that the same king of their lives is available to us today who says, join me in what I'm doing. And I understand why we don't get it. I understand that things like generosity and trusting God and giving our resources for the good of neighbors can be very intangible compared to your budget and your iCal and your, your mortgage payment, okay? Those things are real, aren't they? Your iCal on your phone is real. It tells you what to do. Your boss who demands you get in 7, 8 a.m., he's real. Okay, your mortgage payment is real. If you don't believe that's true, don't pay it this month, okay? It's really real, really quick. It's real. But believing God with our time and resources, man, that can seem so hard to wrap our hearts and minds around. Taking him at his word, trusting that what he says is true, so intangible at times. Which is why if you and I are ever going to become generous people through and through, you need more than Matthew chapter 14 to make you a generous man or woman. You need more than that encouraging conversation or message to get you out of this place to live generous lives. You need a deeper motivation by which to find in your life the capacity to trust that what Jesus says is true. You need to encounter on a personal level Jesus so that he's not simply a narrative on a page, but he's the king of your life. How do we get there? You know, the only other events in Scripture, in the Gospels, than the feeding of the 5,000 that is recorded by all four Gospel writers, the only other event that's recorded by all four Gospel writers other than the feeding of the 5,000 is the death and resurrection of Jesus. All four Gospel writers include this narrative in their text. Most theologians agree that the reason that they do that is because the gospel writers are not simply telling us about a miracle of Jesus, but they're telling us something about the identity of Jesus. The gospel writer John begins his gospel this way. He says, in the beginning was the word Jesus, the creator of all things who stepped out of heaven to join his people in this world. John says, in the beginning was the word, he goes on to say, and the word became flesh and made his home among us. He came for us. The one who had all glory, all honor, all power, all wealth, all resources within the triune God to be eternally fulfilled, captivated, and joyful, left all of that to make his home among yours and mine. John goes on to say that this word laid down his life for the sins of many. On the cross, Jesus, who was wealthy, became poor to make you rich. In fact, the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that he who was rich, the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You see what Paul's saying? saying that on the cross, Jesus looked at us and said, even if I have to lose everything to have you, even if I have to give everything to bring you back into my arms, I will do it because it's worth it. He was wealthy, he became impoverished to make you full. He was the son of God, but he became an enemy of God on the cross to make you a son and a daughter of the king. 
You and I were undeserving before the Father. Our sin condemns us, but Jesus was condemned to set us free. He was rich, we were poor, but he traded places with us. And when you see that the king of your life loves you that much, when you see that Jesus pursues you to bring you back into his arms because he loves you eternally, your heart will be freed from stinginess and self-focus and it will be set free to give in the way that he gave to you. The barriers of seeing needs that are too great, the barriers of saying my God is too small, the barriers of not realizing the invitation that's at hand will completely go away. And you will begin to see that there is a God who invites you into his story, a God who welcomes you to be his representative in your neighborhood, his hands and feet in your workplace, his image in your cul-de-sac, his daughter in your circle of friends, his son at your football party, where you love your neighbors and your friends well in his name. And you're attuned to the needs that they have so you can resource them. And you don't only become a, a citizen of a city, but you work for the welfare of that city because Jesus' heart is for the city. And the entire motivation structure of your heart is transformed where you see that you were called to go and give in the same way that Jesus came and gave for you. And so in these last moments, I wanna make this very practical for you. How do we do it? How do we live generous lives? Every week during this series, we're giving you habits to put into practice in your life because we believe that habits cultivate kingdom values. If you wanna be a person who lives like Jesus, develop disciplines that will cultivate in you Jesus-like qualities. So last week, we encouraged you to begin praying for one person every day. We call it one prayer and ask him, say, Jesus, give me one person to show your love to today. And when he gives you that person, you go out and you love them. And I believe that all habits have to be undergirded with this prayer because it opens our eyes to see the opportunities that have always been in front of us. We just don't have the spiritual sight to see them. So Jesus, habit one, would you give me one person to show your love to today? And if you're not already praying that, join us there. Habit number one, one prayer. The second habit we wanna give you this week is to begin putting into practice the habit of blessing others. And we want to ask you this week to bless three people and from this week on to make it a habit of yours of finding ways to do good for others. The word blessing simply means to confer happiness on someone else, to strengthen their arm, to alleviate a burden or stress in their lives, to do something that brings them joy. We want to encourage you to find three people this week and at least one, if not more of those people who do not know Jesus personally, who are not a part of this community. And you find a way to bless them. You encourage them through written words where you speak life into them. You, you speak verbally words over them that affirm their dignity and value in Christ. You recognize where they're hurting and you build them up. You see a need that a neighbor has and you come around to encourage. Some of you have neighbors who have young kids and you're good friends with them. You say, you know what? We'd like to watch your kids while you go out so you can have joy-filled, healthy romance and marriage. 
Love your kids. If you don't know your neighbors, don't ask to watch their kids, okay? That's creepy. Get to know them first, okay? Don't do that. That's like cart before the horse in discipleship, all right? Okay, some of your friends are in great financial need and you find a way to anonymously bless them, take them groceries, drop diapers off on their doorstep, meet a need that will alleviate distress and bring joy into their life. You got a colleague who you're friends with, take them out to lunch and listen to their story. Don't talk. Christians talk far too much. Listen more than you talk. Listen, listen to their story, encourage, build up, find a way to lift them up. Men, some of you, one of your blessing is your wife this week. Set a time on your calendar to take her out, get childcare, go to a nice restaurant, drink good drink and eat good food and bless her heart and fill it with joy. And when you do alleviate the stress in her life, strengthen her arm. If you give generously to someone, one more thing, do it anonymously. This is not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus that we can encourage, not so that we get attention, but so that he does. And give your resources away. There are a thousand ways to bless people right in front of you. Find ways to do it prayerfully. Let me give you one more. As a community, this Saturday, uh, we have a Surf Saturday event coming up. We're partnering with many organizations in our city and community to love the people they're serving well. So you join us from 9 a.m to noon, and we'd love to see hundreds of people going out into our city to love the city, okay? Because you know how the church gets the attention of the city is when it gets down on its knees and gets its hands dirty for the good of the people. Not when it stays inside comfortable, air-conditioned walls and waits for the people to come in. We go out. The church always transforms the world when it goes out. So join us. Bless the city. And as you do, you will begin to see opportunities available to you that you could not have imagined. Some of us in here up to this point have said things like, I'll begin to give when I have more income than expenses, don't we? I'll start to live generously when I have more time than I do demands. When the kids are out of the house, I'll have more margin. That's when I'll live and begin to bless people. And Jesus says, no, today. You feed them. There are men and women, young people, teenagers all around you whom God has placed in your story so that his story can be part of theirs. Feed them, bless them. And when you do, you cannot imagine what God can do through you. Look at the text. I'll close with this and with a brief story. Verse 19, he told the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish and he looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. You think the disciples in that moment were not like, wow. When's the last time you trusted Jesus so deeply in the way you loved your neighbors that you walked away going, wow. You have no idea what God can do through your life. A year ago, Beth and I got into a van and moved to Iowa this weekend, a year ago. 
Weeks leading up to that, we walked around our neighborhood and we told many of our neighbors whom we had eaten with and celebrated with, our kids had played outside together. We had shoveled snow, we had shared stories, we had shared life, the ups and the downs. And as we made our way around the neighborhood, I went to the neighbor directly across from me, this retired Navy uh, radio operator, rough around the edges, but soft to the core, Snowbird in Florida, I envy that punk. Come home in this, you know, nice weather in New England. I mean, who does that? Some of you, you're punks, okay? And, um, and I loved him. I loved him, he and Mary. So I go to tell Dexter that we're going to be moving away. And I thought Dexter, you know, kind of hardened around the edges, would be like, okay, the best to you. And here I am in front of Dexter, and he starts crying. And he says, Jed, that's the worst news anyone could have ever told us. I never expected that. I do not tell you this story to make you think much of me because I can make a retired Navy man cry, okay? I don't tell you that that reason. Some of you retired Navy men, I'd like to have to punch you in the gut to get you to cry, okay? I tell you that because somewhere along the way, God had tethered our hearts together with Dexter. So in early August, I go back to teach our community there and to encourage the leaders. And at the end of the day, I look out and there's Dexter and Mary and their daughter who had been attending our community. And he came up and we exchanged some words and then we hugged in the awkward ways that men hug for the first time where you're like, you know, like, and then you kind of half hug. Men, we need to learn to hug. That's a different message. And in that moment, entirely different, in that moment, I looked in Dexter's eyes and I could see that God had done something significant through our family that we never imagined, simply because we were available. We walked out into the grass, had conversation. We shoveled his snow while he was vacationing in Florida. He paid our kids as a result. It was awesome. You have no idea what God can do in and through your life if you will begin to live your life as a blessing to others. We as a community have no idea what God can do in and through our community in this city if we will commit to being a blessing to the city. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we experienced the power and the presence of Jesus in the ways we see in Matthew 14. Let's pray that God does that through us. I plead for you to do that this week. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word that is good and compelling and convicting and inspiring. We thank you, Jesus, that before we were your friends, you stepped out of heaven when we were enemies and called us sons and daughters of the king. We thank you that when we were condemned, you died in our place to set us free. We thank you that when we were powerless and our lives falling apart, that by your spirit you indwelled us and you're making us more and more like you. You are good. And so I pray that this week we would move out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our city and our workplaces to be a blessing to others and we would see your presence and your power at work in and through our lives for your glory, Jesus. We pray these things, amen.